With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What up, everybody? L-E-F-K-O-E man here, and it's going to be a different vibe. Because this is a special bonus episode of the podcast, and I'm with a special bonus kind of human. And his name is Ryan Holiday. He, his work is something that I've followed for a very long time. Uh, his books are bestsellers all across the world, translated into tons of different languages. Uh, and I didn't realize that today, with your book being officially released, you were completing the Trinity. I didn't know there was a trinity happening. Uh, I, we've, we've had you on before to talk about obstacles the way. In our NFL world, it swept through the league. The Patriots, the Seahawks, all these teams were reading it about overcoming obstacles. Then you came out with Ego is the Enemy. We talked about Nick Saban and Bill Belichick always finding a way to bring it back. And now the last one, Stillness is the Key, which I just reread today. Uh, and you brought me a, a little gift. And I appreciated a ring, and inside it says, you could leave life right now. Mm-hmm. Ryan Holiday. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Does special bonus episode mean not as good as a regular episode, and we're calling it a bonus episode, or is it actually some sort of bonus? No, it means that like they're going to wake up and go, an episode on a Saturday? Ah, Holy okay. shit, this is awesome. All right. The 33% I, I posted that I was reading your book today, and like four people hit me up and said I already pre-ordered it. Oh, man. And I was awesome. like, let's go. I'll take it. Uh, it's so funny to me because when I look at all your titles, Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, Stillness is the Key, duh, it makes sense. Yeah. When you, when you were writing the first one, was this always planned to be a three-part? No. Um, actually, it was. I was thinking about it today because it is the sort of the close of it. I started the first one in New York in 2012 thinking I was going to write about ancient philosophy mostly applied to business was not at all thinking that it would lead to talking to NFL teams, that players would talk about it, that, yeah. that um, I'd get to do some of the cool stuff I've done in sports. And I had no idea what book would come after each one. So it's just kind of a, it's just been a cool surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed a few weeks ago or a few months ago in your social that you were, were you at the Browns? Or was just the book at the Browns? No, no, I, spo- I spoke to the Brown. I spoke to the team uh, during training camp for the Browns, and then I spoke to the coaches at the training camp for uh, the Rams this year. Oh, nice. and I also spoke. This was the weirdest, crazy. I spoke at the NFL owners meeting. Wow, uh, which was unreal. All right, so take me back because I have a nice relationship with Sean McVay. Yeah, what was your uh, reaction to meeting him? What'd you think? 
Well, I, I'm I'm a huge Sean McVay fan because he's the first coach of my of our age group. Very true. And so there's just something about it where, like, obviously, uh, getting to know him is 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 a very cool guy. But I just be I'm so used to coaches being like my dad or mm. my grandpa. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so like here, this is the first time sort of our generation starting to, and I think sports tend. Like, obviously, because you age quicker in sports, like, sports are sort of the sign of what's to come. And so, you know, I'm hoping we'll see a similar revolution in other parts of society where some of the old ways of doing things will be replaced with maybe a slightly newer, yeah, younger week. way of doing things. Uh, but did you notice any difference because of his age in the uh, accepting of your philosophies compared to older coaches or older front offices? No, I don't think so, because I've definitely heard from coaches of all uh, stripes. But But it is interesting that one of the coolest parts about sports is that you wouldn't expect their sort of relentless focus on self-improvement generally, not just like you'd think these would be people who would be just obsessed with, with, you know, getting a tiny bit stronger or discovering some microscopic advantage on the football field. But in fact, like they're all relentlessly focused on sort of human optimization generally, knowing that it, it manifests itself on the field. So I, I think Sean is just the, sli- the the youngest version of that. Sure, but I, you know, I was I was actually thinking about texting him. Uh, I, I I'm he listens interested. to the podcast, so just tell him. Oh yeah, yeah. so save, save the text. I will. Uh, but but like one of the things that intimidates me about sports is when you hear about the journeys that certain coaches had to go on to become head coaches, like, like 20 year yes. like epic jaunts that like in like Southwest Missouri state. Yeah. yeah. And, and my career has been the opposite of that as well. Like I published my first book at 25, like I dropped out of college. I had a successful career before that. And so, uh, before I was an author. And so I don't know, I don't know if I could do it that way. And I'd be curious if Sean, Feels like he could do it that way. I, mean, I imagine he could, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know. Like, if you told me I had to be a starving writer, starving artist, and my first book would come out when I was 50, I don't know if I would have done something else. I believe it was Winston Churchill who said, it was a fine journey to do once. Yeah. Right? Yes. It's in the book. Yes, yeah. it is. But I, I don't know. Like, the, I, I have a certain admiration for people who have been able to do that, and it also fills me with dread. That's what's so interesting is, so if you haven't read Ryan Holiday's book, any of his books before, uh, you've talked about this on so many podcasts and so many shows about the way you research a book and how you read tons of books every year and you you have a note card system that you learn from Robert Greene that allows you to organize and create like that. And um, what I find to be so interesting about it is you find these patterns, right? Yeah. You, you can find 50 people that were great that took walks every day. Yeah. You can find 50 people that took naps every day and you see how it, it impacts them. And, and for you to have this sort of a meteoric rise very early and so many of your stories are about the troubling path or people realizing their potential at 50 or 60 yeah. years old, there is that interesting disconnect where it's hope for some people and for other people, it's this longing for wanting that hardship. Yeah. I mean, for someone who wrote about a book about obstacles, I feel like I've been very blessed, right? Like, I I think, I I mean, part of what I was trying to do in that book is talk about that obstacles are not just, uh, 
you know, losing your arm or right. being, you know, born into poverty. Obstacles are you wake up every day and the world is not the way that you want it to be, right? Like the coach doesn't want to play you. Yeah. Your publisher's not giving you the marketing support that you want. Right. You get stuck in traffic, you know. The, as the, big or small as it is. Yeah, there's like shit is always happening. And, and I think what I try to write about is how do you sort of use that, not be overwhelmed by it, not be sort of aggrieved by it. But I do feel fortunate that, uh, you know, there hasn't been this like sort of massive adversity that I've had to go through. Sometimes I, I think about like at, it at could be same, coming. At the same time watching. Oh, that that's absolutely a possibility. Yeah, right. But that's what we accept and yeah. it is how it goes. Yeah. But I think with you is the one thing that I see in your life that I see in all of the stories is a discipline. Yeah. And that is also, I think, defining of of the billionaires that own the NFL teams to the millionaires that play on them is discipline is the probably the biggest deciding factor between success and mediocrity. Well, that was the interesting thing about the owners meeting, because you're like you're looking out in the audience. And so there's the coaches and the GM, some of whom you recognize. And then it's like 32 billionaires. And they're all they all look like the same suit. And they're all. No, no. They're all each one of them is like their own cartoon version of the, you know, like yeah. there's Jerry Jones on one side yep. and then there's like, it's Shad like succession with like all of his kids. And then yeah. Shad Khan with like a cartoon mustache that yeah. looks like he might tie someone to a railroad track. Yeah, totally. Right. There's Stan Kroenke. And then there's, uh, Jim Ursay. Like, yeah. And then, then there's a, uh, what's, what's, um, who's the owner of the Raiders? Uh, Oh yeah. Mark Davis. Yeah. So, so they're just, so they're all, who they are and they all obviously are great at what they do and to some, to, you know, to varying degrees, but like just radically different. And I think what I, I, what I do try to write about in my books is what, what are the commonalities between people like that? So you could look at a great artist, you could look at a great general, you could look at a great president, you could look at some military conqueror and, and what, what, what do they have in common? It's usually a set of practices or habits. And, and some, sometimes the, the habits that they share, they could have this habit and then the opposite habit in some other part of their life. But I do tend to look for patterns and that's what I think that's what I think makes the books work. I did self scouting of the last two times I've interviewed you. Okay. And what I realized was I was. So you mean you watched film of yourself? Is a that little what? bit. Okay. Uh, actually, what I did was I read your book and then I took a walk uh, because it, it, it talks about uh, the great the great thought you can do just when you're doing repetitive action like walking and how it frees yeah. your mind. And what I realized was I was very selfish. Okay. I read your book and I read all these great stories and then I had follow-up questions, but I was selfish to two people. I was selfish to my audience and okay. I was selfish to you because you're here to talk about your book okay. and to get people excited about it. And I'm selfish to my audience as though I'm not explaining to them the best parts of the book. And what I get so much from your writing that I want them to understand is these little anecdotes, especially in the sports world, that... I consider myself an expert in this, and I didn't even know about Tiger Woods' upbringing. Like, I'm reading what you're writing about Tiger Woods and what he went through with his dad, and I'm like, I want you to deliver this gift to them, and all those interviews I've done, I did it. So this, I'm trying to be very self-aware. Like, well, I'll, I'll be I'll be unselfish too because my stuff on Tiger Woods in the book. There's the great new biography of Tiger Woods. Yes, was that the Armageddon? Yes, yes, it's fantastic. And then there's this fantastic ESPN piece about Tiger Woods that I used also. Who, the, I'm, but but it comes up like yeah. the the Navy SEAL training and all the stuff that he did. It's unreal. Because I read that and I, I always thought that Tiger had a bad back and we would joke, oh, it's because of that Thanksgiving Day accident yeah. or it was because when you play golf, there's a lot of twists and turns. But 
reading about Tiger Woods's relationship with his dad. Yeah. And and sitting there in a in a high chair watching his dad taking thousands of swings and seeing his dad on the road and all of his actions it it painted that picture for me so much more crystal clear I've ever realized. Well it, it is interesting cuz I think we've when when the story was coming out we thought about it as like, oh, this is what it takes to be great. And, and in uh, David Epstein's new book, he talks about like just what a myth, the idea of that sort of, that, that you have to pick what you're going to be, you have to pick what your kid is going to be at two mm. and, and just sort of pound it into their head. That's really Tiger's actual great weakness is that he's, he's been so myopically focused on golf his whole life that, um, that I think he, he did a lot of damage to his body, but also just mentally that was not good. Mm. But when you, when you re- like with some distance and when you're not getting it through a Nike campaign, when you're not looking at his childhood through the lens of a Nike campaign, you're like, this was horribly abusive. This horribly. Horribly. His dad, I, I think his dad was probably a psychopath. Um, I mean, he like he went to Vietnam. He had some did some dark stuff there. He had a separate family. He brought, he brought a wife back from from Vietnam, even I had though no he was idea. already married. Um, and basically, didn't want another kid. Tiger comes, and he sort of treats Tiger Woods as like a science fair experiment, right? And the. He was like, was he a Green Beret? Yeah, he was a Green Beret. And he pretty beret. much raised Tiger through Green Beret training? Yeah, he basically subjected him to intense, like, sort of deprivation and exposure, all of which made him really tough on the golf course, but a miserable human being. Yeah. I mean, even that story of, like, okay, Tiger Woods would watch his dad play golf in the garage. Uh, if you have a kid, you're like, what? Like... <laughs> You don't just strap your kid into a chair for hours while you play golf in front of them. You don't even want your kid in the garage. You're like, this, there's chemicals. And like, yeah, you know, yeah. This is not what you do. And so it's, it's cute and quaint that Tiger Woods started golfing so early and that he was on the Mike Douglas show putting at two and a half. Right. But you're also like, wait, that's not good for him. And so it ended like his dad would, would cheat when they would golf together. His dad would yell racist slurs at him, would try to, you know, distract, would do these things. It was like he was trying to make him not a human being. Mm. And in a way, that's kind of what happened. Um, and and so it made him fantastic at golf, but fantastic only at golf. Yeah. And the rest of the human stuff that's necessary to balance out extreme success like that, I think eventually made him extremely vulnerable and and we saw what happened. I feel because I got a chance to meet Tiger last Thanksgiving at the match, and when I first felt his energy, I was completely taken aback. Because yeah. you hear these stories, but I'm leading a press conference and he walks out, and I had never seen a human walk that stiff or make oh, totally. so little eye contact with anybody and be so centrally focused on doing what needs to be done and then leaving. And I, I've joked about this story before where I had to also do a little interview after Phil Mickelson beat him for $9 million. Yeah. And they came out and I said, Tiger, I hate to do this, but Phil just whooped your ass. Yeah. I had a little bit to drink. And afterwards he looked at me and he goes, I enjoyed it and walked away. And Phil goes, like a robot. Phil goes, I've never heard him say that before. <laughs> and I believe that he softened up a little bit yeah. after he won the Masters. That moment with his kid, it, was, sure. it really was beautiful. Yeah. From what you've read about all these people with insane drive or insane work ethic, can it 
can they chip away at that and gain some of the human back or I think so. I think so. Um, or at least I hope so, right. you know, because I don't think I would wish that permanent state on anyone, but it it is it sort of endemic to the champion mindset, like what it takes to so relentlessly want to get better, to never be satisfied with what you have done, to be driven to be the absolute best it does make it impossible for you to enjoy what you have. Mm. And so it's kind of a paradox. And so like, obviously Tiger Woods is the best golfer in the history of the game, but would you rather be Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson? You know? Uh, And so like, look, Elon Musk, hugely important for humanity. Would you want to be Elon Musk? It's a lot of pressure, man. It's not just a lot of pressure. It doesn't seem fun. Like, you know, even if you reach the moon, someone's like, yeah, you're going to get to Mars though. Like, well, and, and you know, it's like the Donald Trump thing where he says like, you're going to be so tired of winning. It kind of seems like winning sucks. Like at that, at that extreme level. So when we talk about Tom Brady, yeah, because Tom Brady, I think these last few years, we marvel at his process. Yeah. We marvel at his discipline and how he doesn't eat nightshades or yeah. tomatoes. Yeah. And and we see that he wins a Super Bill Belichick wins the Super Bowl and it's it's do your job and he's back at the office the next day. And yeah. we've talked about stories about Jerry Rice winning the Super Bowl and he's practicing the next day. Are they enjoying it? Do they ever have a moment? I think it depends. I think it depends. I think there's kind of a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. What I, what I've heard about Saban, for instance, is that Saban is actually better to be in the locker room with when you've lost a national championship than when you've won one. That's fascinating. Because when you lose, he's like, this is on me. You did a great job. Like we'll be back next year. When you, when he wins, he's like, uh, well, Let's get back at it. You know what I mean? And oh, that's so deflating to yeah. hear from a team that like poured everything into the season. Or he's thinking, <laughs> we didn't do it as well as we could have. We could have won 63 to 10. Yes. Yeah. And so so there is an element of that. And I have that too. I mean, like I'm sitting here, I got a book coming out today and I also have a proposal out for like my next four. Wow. Right. Like, and I was writing this morning. Like, so I, there is a, there's a, an element of it that's compulsive. But there's also an element of it that's pure and authentic that loves the work. And you got to you you always got to be thinking about why are you doing it for the compulsive, like sort of broken reason? Like if I do this, my dad will be proud of me. Mm. You know, if I do this, I'll I'll be so rich. They can't laugh at me. Those are bad reasons. If you're doing it because you if, if Saban is leaving the celebration because he genuinely loves the rush of recruiting. Yes, that's good. If it's because he's chasing something or yes. running from something, yes, it, that that's a very different. So it it all depends on where you're coming from. So I I, I think, and I talk in the story. There's this exchange between Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut, two of the great writers of the, of the 20th century, and they're at this party with this billionaire. I think this applies to sports. Uh, and and Vonnegut sort of making fun of Joseph Heller. Joseph Heller wrote Catch Twenty Two, and he says. You know, how does it feel that this billionaire made more money this week than your book will make in a lifetime? And he says, I have something that this guy doesn't have. And he's like, what could that possibly be? And Heller says, I have a sense of enough. And and I I like that. I like the, the cleverness of the quip. But I also love when you think about it. Heller didn't stop at Catch-22. He wrote a bunch of other books. They were bestsellers like. But he wasn't coming at it from a place of, now that was shit, and I still have to prove myself. Right. So to me, it's like, can you 
can you strive to be better? Can you love the, the process, but can you love it from a good place rather than a dark place? Mm. And I think the vast majority of Tiger Woods' career came from a dark place. I was just going to say, I loved how you showed the curse word in the Woods family was the word enough. Yeah. yeah. That it meant to submit. Yeah. to give up. And then I'm looking in the second part and, and his book, your book is broken down into mind, spirit, and body. Yeah. And so in mind, we're hearing, this is about toughening the mind, never say enough. But then in spirit, it was, you need to understand that enough is enough. Yeah. And, and I love the showing of if, if you, if you live that way, you'll never be satisfied ever. Yeah. There's a Tiger Woods uh, interview on Charlie Rose. This is like after all the shit, you okay. know? And, and Charlie, Charlie Rose goes like, you know, what, what would you miss the winning or it says, and he goes, winning is good, but beating people is always better. <laughs> and, and that's, that's so awful. You know what I mean? Like, that's so sad. And, and I, like, I, I don't mean to be condescending. I just like, if that's what your parents taught you, like that was horrible. That was a horrible thing for them to teach you. And there's something, his mom said something to him once she was like, if you ever, you will never embarrass me because if you will, I'll beat you. Yeah. Not like you won't do bad things because you're a good person, yeah. but it was like appearance. So I, I feel like I, what I saw in that master's win uh, is that's what he won, right? It was the mm -hmm. master's. Yeah. Um, that moment where he's hugging his kid afterwards. And I, I felt that was a, that was a, a win from a different place. I, and I think it has I, to be. I think that's why it felt so special. I think, but I also, I don't think he could have endured those 10 years from the dark place. Like, because what it needs is it needs the winning and the domination as the fuel to keep going. And that clearly see, there was some deeper, I think, pure, he, he was so not Tiger Woods for so long yeah. and he stayed at it. It could, it, that, to me, that's a pure, better place. When I was talking about Brady before in the discipline, uh, and you have a story later in the book about um, schedules and routines. Yeah. Uh, I, for someone for a long time who subscribed to the notion, screw routine. Yeah. You're getting stuck into repetitive action. I'm going to take a different way home from work every day. And then when you look at the most successful people yeah. and you see that those routine allows you the freedom. Like what I loved is that I never knew. Russell Westbrook eats a peanut butter and jellies. What is it? What does he do? He has the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich every game. I, I went to a Thunder game not that long ago. They sent me like one of them. It was pretty great. Uh, but he eats it the with same six way. minutes and 17 seconds before the game starts every game. And he doesn't just eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It has to be cut a certain way. Diagonally. Has to, has to have Which is the right way yeah, to do it. Of course. When you want like it in a heart shape or something. Uh, but uh, you want he wants to cut a certain way and a certain kind of bread with a certain kind of ingredients. Strawberry jam, I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. I heard when teams like really want to, because like uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are like the thing in the NBA. Yeah. And like a lot of times the other, the, the home team has to like provide the stuff. And so like when they really want to like mess with the team, they'll send like Uncrustables because it's like That's the so worst funny. one for you. <laughs> Or like one of those containers with peanut butter and jelly in it together, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was a great idea, but probably not what you want. Um, but yeah, so, uh, but the routine the and routine the discipline. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, I actually like the idea of taking a different way home from work. There's, there could be a variety. I don't think that's necessarily antithetical to routine. The point is you got to reduce the amount of pointless decisions that you make in your life. 
And you got to reduce the amount of sort of like moral quandaries that you're like, do I do this? Do I do that? Because there's an unlimited amount of stuff you can do. And the more successful you become, the more like I, I, uh, I was reading the Belichick biography and it was like, it's interesting. Belichick has like basically never done an endorsement or a television commercial. And really? if you think about it, I mean, maybe there's been one or two small ones, but he could I'm make Bill Belichick and I like <laughs> Maylocks. Yeah. He could make tens of millions of dollars. If he supported a brand, the, yeah. the, the, what it would give to that brand would be unbelievable. But what, at what cost would that come to the focus of, of, Man. so the, the, the idea, like, if you think about the, I don't do endorsements versus I do some endorsements. Even though it's not, maybe it's one or two a year. Now you have to think about whether you, like I, uh, I have deliberately not done an interview podcast, even though I've gotten lots of interesting offers because I've seen the cost that it comes to other writers that I know. Uh, And not that I'm like judging their decision. Why are you doing this then? (laughs) No, no, I don't have my own. Oh, gotcha. gotcha, That's what I mean. I don't have my own. Oh, that would take you away from what you actually want to do. Like what's the, the, and this is the, the Rams, uh, one of their slogans is like, keep the main thing, the main thing. And so if you, if you go, this is my main thing, but I also do all these other things. um, And I, or at least think about doing all these other things that can come at the cost of, that, it's not just the cost of like, okay, I'm, I have to spend a day filming this Toyota commercial. Right. It's now I have to think about these offers for these 50 commercials. And then I have to see it, it's the whole process of, of the, the distraction. Selfish question. Okay. Uh, there was a part in the body section where you were writing about, um, you know, the, the overvaluing of stuff. Yeah. And you also said, you know, that a photo isn't the memory. And and you said, you know, if you fall in love in Anguilla and then you get married, was that about me since I proposed in Anguilla? Did you? Re- I, for- I didn't. I didn't. You can that. tell everybody. I wonder if I was. If, if you I was saw my consciously, Insta- that's what I think it was. You, I think you saw an Instagram post and went, yeah. I, I, uh, did it's not, okay if you did. I did. I did not think of that consciously, but, but perhaps I did. Um, I think uh, uh, in addition to like the Tiger Woods stories that were great, I think that the um, the baseball story uh, about my fellow Jew, Sean Green, uh, was great because I remember him going six for six with seven RBIs and having that run. And I did not realize that he was in a hitting slump before. And I'd love for you to share that mindset of what he went through, because I think a lot of my listeners have moments of that in their lives. Yeah, in, in mid-2002, Sean Green is in the worst slump of his career. He's just signed a huge contract with the Dodgers. And they're basically thinking of trading him, sending him down to the minors, benching him, whatever. And what tends to happen in slumps, both from what I've read about and then the performance coaches I've talked to, it's it's you become your own worst enemy because now you're not present at the plate. You're thinking about the slump mm. and the Yogi Bear quotes. Perfect. Yeah. Well, well you can't it, fit and, fit and think and hit at the same time. And it like physically that makes sense. Like in terms of physics, like you have 400 milliseconds <laughs> to swing at a pitch, 400 milliseconds. Yeah. Uh, you cannot be thinking about anything. That's what Brian Westbrook, who is one of my co-hosts was saying is, I can I can look and see if a guy gets it or not because I'm not going, oh, I need to lean this way yeah. to get a defender. You either have that ability to do it or you think too much. It's the single hardest act in all of sports. I hitting a baseball. Hitting yes. a baseball. Uh, it, it, 
it it's on the line of straight up defying physics. Like we don't really quite understand how they're able to do yeah. it because you technically have to decide and begin swinging before the balls really left their hands. Unreal. And, and that's why like the best who's ever done it is like at 400. Yeah. That means he's missing six out of 10 times. <laughs> it's just insane. So, um, what Sean green does is the opposite of what most players do. Um, well, it, it, there's an interesting story, and he tells it in. Uh, he wrote a fascinating book, which you'd like, called "The Way of Baseball." Okay. Um, but but basically, not only was he in a slump, but like his coach hated him, and uh, he was like sort of barred from batting practice, and so he had to do a lot. And this I may be pushing some stuff together because a slump is like a virus. Don't bring yeah. it around the other yeah. people. He so he did most of his practicing on a tee, like he was like playing tee ball. And and so what he realizes is like I have to like wipe this cl- I can't think about any of this. And so this is sort of when he starts picking up Zen Buddhism, he starts meditating and and basically he, he comes to the idea of like look, I have to be totally and utterly present at the mount. I can't be thinking about the streak, I can't be thinking about what I'm going to do. I, I can't be thinking about anything. I have to be totally there. And so it's this, I, you know, he would repeat to himself, uh, chop, uh, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water. It's about pushing the mind. So you, it, emptying the mind sounds bad. Uh, it sounds like the absence of thought, but really it's making room for the sort of subconscious thought and the muscle memory to do what they do. And he's able to, to get it. He comes out of the slump basically with this maybe w- top 15 performances in all of baseball. He had six home runs in one game, uh, like one grand slam. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. And then, and then he hits like the next like three, four days. He's still on the streak. It's just, it, he works himself to whatever the best place you could possibly be is. Right. And that place is so fleeting. It only lasts for like three or four games, yeah. but like it defines a life. It defines a career. And so how do you get there? Whether you're a movie producer or a podcaster or a writer or, a, I mean, look, a uh, uh, guy's not far from here on wall street, a single day of that level of concentration and focus could make a fortune that lasts generations. You know, like it's, we think these moments don't matter, but they do matter. And, and the idea that you're going to bring anything less than, all of yourself to it in a way is like very arrogant. Like that it's like, Oh, I'm going to be giving a talk today, but I'm also just going to be texting on my phone, like right up until I go on. Like, it's not how it works. Cause you, you wrote a lot about, you know, sitting in stillness, even if it's like the five minutes before you go on, yeah, allowing the silence to kind of creep in. And um, my fiance does a lot of dance. So when you kept putting Twyla Tharp in the book, we've talked about Twyla so much. And she was talking about, you know, it's like, I don't even know if this is the right phrase, but like healthy loneliness or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and a lot of people, especially in today's age, and we love to do this and talk about people's obsession with their cell phones, but we do not sit alone. I went to a float tank recently and I went in there and I went into the lobby and I'm about to go on my phone and check Twitter. And it says on there, please do not use your phones. Yeah. And there's three dudes sitting there on their phones look at no no looking at the walls looking at the ceiling i'm i'm walking over i'm reading pamphlets and it's so funny because we are electing to enter a dark void world of silence but up sit, until then you but can. up until then i got to cram it all when really i can get in the right mindset now but what i liked about the what the Sean Green stuff was he's 4 for 4 yeah 
And now he can go, I'm not in a slump anymore. Yes. And he can go out there and go, how do I keep doing what I'm doing? But instead he kept going, chop wood, carry water. Yeah. And so he was able to sit in that beautiful flow and, and sit in the stillness and, and to bring it back to Belichick, there's this story about the the seat the Seahawks Patriots Super Bowl. Yeah. Where with like a minute left, Belichick looks over and he sees the panic on the Seattle sideline. And he sees Pete Carroll running up and down. And what's incredible, because this was in Mike Lombardi's book about um the Bel uh, in his book about coaching gridiron genius, he was saying that in the in before the year started. Belichick was working on defenses in the red zone because the he year before they were so bad. Play. And and we we can marvel at the fact that it culminated in the Super Bowl, which is just the most Patriots yeah. Belichick thing ever. But of course, because that's how he operates. But I've always heard that story and didn't believe it a little bit. Because I thought this is the Super Bowl. Yeah. I've been to a few. I know the madness that's going on. I still don't understand don't understand how coaches with forty seconds can process what the other team's gonna do, who's out there for them. I, I I'm looking at the commercials. Yeah. And it made sense to me when I read your book about him being in the stillness and not being overwhelmed by sensory. What did you, because he was just asked about this. They're like, oh, are you looking at analytics? He was like, I'm looking at analytics less than zero times. And I think people took the wrong thing from that because clearly he is obsessed with math and the organization is, is built around math. But the point is he the math, it's like the math a year before said they weren't good in the goal line, you know, at those, that goal line play. So he practiced it to such a point. So when he is sitting there on the sideline and the game is on the, the, the game is on the line, he's not thinking about anything. He just knows, right? It just comes naturally. Do you um, believe he's photographic memory? Like, what, I mean, what I'm kind sure of he has part of that. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think I think you want to you want to get to a place where you're so prepared, where you're so in your rhythm mm. that it just it just take it just takes over. There's a great Twyla Tharp thing she was talking about. We were talking about routines. She's talking about like every day she she goes to her studio. She does like 45 minutes of this. It's just like routine she does every day. She's like the routine is the 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 routine is the winning is not like me working out at the gym. The winning is when I get in the cab to go to the gym. She's like, as long as I just get myself out of the house mm. and start the process, it, it takes over. That's like what David Goggins says all the time, where he's like, just get up and fucking run. Now, yeah. he says it a lot yeah. more motivating, but um, yeah, just the, the start of the action is the success. Yeah, and so you what you do is you go back further and further from the action to the the little actions, James Clear calls them like atomic habits. The little I, ones. I literally read that book recently. Yeah, he's I, the, great. the example that I give to everybody is the ice cube at thirty two degrees. Yeah. When it's frozen at twenty five. Yeah. And nobody talks about it moving from twenty five to twenty nine, but we all want to talk about when it goes from thirty one to thirty two and it starts sweating at the top. Yeah. 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 So it's all about the, the little things that that precede the outcome. And so that decision on that goal line is from a year of practice and it ensues. So I got a copy of this book again, stillness is the key um, a few months ago. And there was very early a story that my producer Ingber has heard many times. and I've sent it to leaders in this and it's the notion of inputs and Napoleon. Yeah. Um, we live in a world right now, I have a lot of alerts on my phone Yeah, because I run a lot of social media accounts and all that stuff and I'm trying to keep up with it. And we have this notion today that to be successful, you must be ever present. Yeah. 
But when I read about Napoleon and how he would tell his secretary, if something comes, wait three weeks to give it to me because it will likely sort itself out. I experience those moments all the time now that like you've shown that to my brain and this generation, I think more than any really needs to know about that. Yeah. So Napoleon's thing was, I'm not, don't give me information or requests in real time. He's like, look, if it's really bad news, like wake me like immediately. Catastrophic. Yeah, wake me that's up. what I need. But don't wake me up with good news. Cause like, I don't really need to know it doesn't change anything. And don't wake me up with trivial requests that the passage of time is going to likely resolve. And so I, what I take from that is like so much of why we feel overwhelmed is actually like not the outside world. It's, it's our decision. I'll give you an example. So I get lots of emails from fans. It's wonderful. Uh, I, but I can't just, I can't, if I kept up with them in real time, I would never have time to write. You wouldn't accomplish anything. And so what I what I do is I, I sort of star them. I, I mark them as red. I star them. And I respond when I'm on planes. Like when I was flying here yesterday, I responded to like 20 of them or whatever. Inevitably, I'll, sometimes I'll respond like two months late, three months late. Yeah. Uh, as the books have done better, the, the response time has lagged more. But um, invariably, people will reply, oh, my God, I never thought you would reply. Thank you so much. Even though I'm replying like a one sentence reply to some 500 word email two months later, they're like, I never thought you would reply. Thank you so much. I'm not saying that to show that I'm a great human being. (laughs) What I'm saying is that they sent me an email not expecting a reply. And so the guilt that I felt about not responding fast enough is totally in my own head. You manufacture that yourself. And and it's like that with a lot of things. People feel like, I need to know what's going on in the world. I need to follow the news in real time. I need to check my email in real time. That's why I have to, I know I'm supposed to be having dinner with my family, but like, what if I got an email from work, you know? And, And the truth is like, almost nothing is more important than whatever you're doing in that moment. And even if that thing is not important, and so it, it requires some practice and discipline and I think clear boundaries to decide, you got to decide when, when you're going to do it. And so like for me, like I, I've had to more or less stop using Twitter because I found I can't really use it healthily. I feel like the last, when you did your whole uh, Trump thing with your dad, yeah, that was like a separate thing that kind of blew up. Yeah. And knowing that you're also like a big marketing guy, I was like, he probably planned this whole thing and knew this is the perfect way to go. But I feel like you probably, this is a guess, did you get such a reaction that that sort of pushed you off Twitter a little bit? No, it was actually more. So I wrote this book a couple of years ago about uh, Peter Thiel's uh, destruction yes, conspiracy. of conspiracy. And the whole... It's really good you should buy that. <laughs> the horribly nasty tweets from terrible people in media mm. was so gross that I was just like... Like actual media people. Yeah, just like... Because you, you, ta- sort of, you, you were chronicling the, the loss of a big website with so many jobs that people might want. You, yeah. just, you just realize that like there's this whole generation of people that have been sort of radicalized by social media. Some of them politically. Yeah. Some of them just sort of like with this weird... This is, nasty, like meanness, you know? And it's just, I just don't think it's a super healthy place to be. Like I still use it. I try, but I try, like, I, I try not to, I don't have it on my phone. I try not to use it in real time. And, uh, I like, it's great for relationships, like talking to people in DMS. It's like, uh, a great way to reach people you'd otherwise have no way to do. But what I try not to do is any sort of like scrolling through the feed because it just, I don't think it's good for mental health. No, I don't think so either. But 
But I do it. But I, if I were you, like you do have to use it for work and I have right. to use it for work too. What I would say is you got to delete the alerts though. You got to get rid of the alerts. Yeah. Because I like, here's what I do. I just look at it and go like, what are 10 case? Give me, see if you can come up with 10 cases where res- getting the alert and your response in real time so, had a significant impact right, on I'll your career. I'll pitch this to you. So my only thing is I have found that the ability to, again, this is going to sound very futile, and welcome to a very serious lights-off experience. <laughs> what is this? I don't know. I did not plan this. All the lights just went off in the studio. I have... All right, so Nick is looking into it. <laughs> I would hope so. I'm going to stop doing an interview. Hey. There we go. All right, so the, the lights literally just went off and they're back on. Um, if, let's say, um, Bleach Report posts uh, a, a video about football and I get an alert and I comment within the first two minutes, based on the algorithms, I go at the top and I have found that it'll lead to like 30 or 40 followers. So in the effort of growing accounts, sure. it has become beneficial. Now we can have a very long conversation about the actual benefit of having followers. Well, I would, so I would go, yeah, what's the, what's the very real ROI? And then I would also say, uh, let's say there is a very real ROI. Like let's say it makes you $50,000 a year or some right. number. Uh, can't you pay someone to do it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And so, so, so like, uh, I, I have Instagram, but it's on my wife's phone. And so I use it, but I have to like get her phone. So, so I, you have to like opt in to like ask her to use it. It's a whole process. Yeah. Or I can just send her a photo and say, can you post this? She does post a lot. For she you. does. But, uh, which has some costs because she, <laughs> she often goes through the filter, but, but, uh, then I'm, there's no temptation for me. Uh, to like mindlessly scroll or to see other stuff. Because so. that it's the it's the loss of time. And that's what I was trying to explain to people at Bleach Report with the whole idea of Napoleon of limiting inputs. You can't do any worthwhile thought and you can't do any worthwhile creation if you're constantly trying to keep up with everything. So wait, so how many followers do you have? Uh, I think on Instagram, it's like 17 or 18. And then the left go show accounts at like 38. But I mean the, the, the video one. Uh, th- so you're, you're talking about Instagram. You're talking about Twitter, Instagram, okay. Twitter. And like, okay. So, so you get 40 followers a pop for, yeah. for, for having your entire life <laughs> be uh, <laughs> on call and where like your attention can be yeah. interrupted at any moment. Oh, I know this it's is ridiculous. a content factory. They post hundreds of videos a day. Yeah. Like that's what yeah, uh, man, you're you going to get, get we'll, we'll have a conversation yeah. later because there was supposed to be, but we'll figure it out. Um, in, in terms of though, the, I want to get back to kind of the stories like Jordan, we're talking about fuel. Yeah. Jordan was so fueled by hate. And what's so funny Hate's is a strong word. I would say anger and resentment, but the, the hall of fame speech really cap. I think it really, it did catch a lot of people off guard. Yeah. And w- what it made me realize is I had a poster of Jordan in my room. And the quote on it was, I've missed thousands of shots in my career, and that's the reason I'm so great. And and at first I was like, what an amazing, like this guy has made all the shots I remember. Uh, I can't even visually remember a video of him missing a shot. It's only the the ELO shot and winning, and then the the one against the Utah Jazz. Um, But then you realize, what is the fuck, what is the point? 
if even at this moment where you get into the Hall of Fame, you bring the dude that beat you to get a roster spot in high school yeah. and you still have to, to show everybody. Imagine being angry at someone who got a spot on a high school, just a high school, like just anything in high school, yeah. still being angry and you're Michael Jordan. And then you go, he actually was better than you. He was like seven inches taller than Michael Jordan. Yeah, like Jordan was 5'11". Yeah. The kid was 6'7". It's not like... What do you, what do you, what decision you now run an NBA franchise, right? Like what decision would you have made? That's insanity. Have you met a lot of people that have overcome incredible obstacles and achieved a lot and you just see they're still not happy or they're still trying to chase something? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, it's a very common thing because the anger is, it, it's, I would say it's e drugs and musicians to anger and successful people. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a, it, like there, there is this element. I think we all have it of wanting to prove people wrong. And so that's very powerful fuel, but it's also very combustible fuel. And it's, it's also very corrosive fuel. And so I think you see it in that, that hall of fame speech. It's not just that he's angry at that guy. I, to me, the, the weirdest, strangest part is when he complains how much the tickets to the dinner cost for his children. And you're like, what? <laughs> you sold a billion dollars worth of shoes this year. Yeah, you literally just launched like a $500 million tequila company. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you realize that what, what it is is uh, you go, okay, I'm going to prove these people wrong. So you have that anger and it works. But eventually it stops working. And so what the mind does, it's like uh, people have back pain, right? Uh, you have back pain and that's why you start taking opioids. But then the mind begins to create pain so you continue to take opioids, right? The, the mind is creating things to be angry about because it knows that's what you that's need what for gets. fuel. Yeah. And like Belichick does this, but I think Belichick, I don't think Belichick is walking around as an angry person. I think as a coach, he goes, what can, what can I find as a piece? It, it, what can I... I can't believe they said this about us and he wants to use it for the team, but I don't think he's sincere. No. You know what I mean? And that's the difference is like, are you, are you deciding to pick something in this moment or is this going to like the sort of core marrow of your being that like it's you against the world? That's just not, that's not a place that will allow you to enjoy the fruits of whatever you end up accomplishing. And I think a lot of people convince themselves much like a rocket ship that the fuel is those boosters to get you out of the atmosphere. Yeah. And then once I get there, I'll drop my anger yeah. and I'll float freely in space and achieve right. all that I've hoped and look down at earth and realize my place. Right. And what they don't realize is they never drop the tanks. No, the t yeah, the tanks. And if are you don't you drop are. them, yeah. you explode. Yeah. Like yeah, if yeah. you don't no, drop them, you're in trouble. Yeah. But it, it, the problem is, is they go, that's how I got here. Right. This is what I've based. This is the reason I'm successful. Mm -hmm. And they cling to it. And I think that it's very rare when like Ariana Huffington was like that, where she was, she probably was like, sleep is for losers. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. And then she almost died and went, oh, no, I need to sleep. Yeah. And right. you need almost that cataclysmic realization. You need like a kind of a rock bottom. And, and from what I've heard, that's actually what that Hall of Fame moment was for Jordan. I've heard really? that, he's, that that for him, the analogy I heard, it was just like he'd stuff this all in a closet over the years. And then it came exploding out and everyone saw what was in there and he saw what was in there. And oh, he was like, wow. I don't like that. So I, I've heard, that's, I've heard he's that's still, phenomenal. Yeah, I've heard he's still super competitive and yeah. still very simple. But I've heard that it's not as bad.
Yeah, because it, it doesn't even need to explode out of your closet. Yeah. But like if your friend came over and happened to accidentally open it and yeah. saw what was inside like, and oh, their reaction. How do you live like this? But you but you don't realize it. Yeah. Because right. everyone looks at their closet and goes, yeah, that's just my stuff. Yeah. They don't realize what it is. Totally. Uh, we were talking about this before with Ingber about archery. Yeah. and Kenzo, and letting it all go. And if you could kind of explain that, and then I want to equate it to one guy in sports right now that I think has, has oh, sort of achieved what you're trying to do. Well, so it, it is interesting because the people who are most obsessed with process in sports have won the most. Like Saban talks about process. He's the greatest legacy in, you know, basically in college football. Belichick, same thing. Um, so it's funny that in the rest of the world, that's not how people are always results focused. Right. Like, uh, like whenever I hear an author tell me how many copies of a book they want to sell, I'm like, I'm, I'm out because, <laughs> because like, first off, you're saying at this company with like views. Yeah. Like it's all bullshit. It first off, it's bullshit. Second, it's, uh, we all know that the best stuff doesn't necessarily have the most views. And the idea that, that you can actually realistically do anything to get that goal is preposterous. So like whenever someone, I remember someone was like, Oh, I want to sell 2 million copies. And I was like, why 2 million copies? And they're like, well, I heard, you know, Malcolm Gladwell sold 1.5 million copies of this book. And it's like, so you just pulled this number out of your ass. Basically. Like you just decided someone else had done X. Yeah. So you had to do, you know, like 20% more than X. And that's such a crappy way to, to live. But it, it's also like, shouldn't the goal be to reach as many people as the book can reach? Right. And, and, and shouldn't also the goal be to write like the best possible book and, and which part do you control writing a great book or do you control how many copies it sells? So like we have this, what, if you've read Zen and the art of archery, he talks about this idea of willful will. And it's that it's the archer who really intently is trying to hit a bullseye who will never hit them because you, your consciousness isn't allowing room for the process to happen. Mm. And you're not focused on form. You're fo it, it, uh, the better analogy, since not many people do archery anymore, is golf. When you are trying really hard at golf, you are shitty at golf. Yeah. You know, like if, when you step up to the ball and you're like, I'm going to hit this a mile. That's when it goes it off, to the right, off yeah, 15 yeah. feet. Yeah, that's when you embarrass yourself. And, and so um, we can see that in these sort of isolated incidents in sports. And then we go right back to our life and they're like, I'm going to make a million dollars or I'm going to sell this company for a fortune to Google. And it's like, no, you got to say, like, I'm going to do my best. Yeah. It's, every coach in the beginning of the season goes, we're going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, the Tennessee Titans don't go out there and go, we're going for seven and nine. Yeah. Like, if you really think about it now, when Jeff Fisher, this was on Hard Knocks, went up there and says, we're not going to do this eight and eight bullshit. That was his main focus. And then they went four and 12 <laughs> because the goal was never, it was just, we don't want to be average. Yeah. Okay. Well, you got your wish, but it was, they were never building on it day to day. Yeah. But, but in terms of uh, the Kenzo part about enjoying the process, and it's not about whether you hit the bullseye, it's enjoying pulling back the arrow. Yeah. And when it goes, and, and I really think when I watch Patrick Mahomes right now, I'm seeing an effortless. I'm, sure. I'm seeing, I'm not seeing someone that's thinking. Every time he's upset on the sideline, it's because the process wasn't filled. And literally a video came out today, which was him before the 87 yard or the 80, excuse me, 78 yard drive on Sunday to win the game. He stood there and said, just trust your teammates, trust the process. 
and have faith and we're going to do it. Yeah. And I don't, I never see him struggling. I never see him thinking too much. The fact that he, this happened on Sunday. I, I doubt you saw it. There was one play where he's running and he looks back at the referee and keeps running. And the announcers were amazed that in the presence, it was like a fourth and eight. The game was on the line and he had the presence of mind to look back to see if the ref had thrown a flag and looked at the ref to be like, why didn't you throw a flag? Yeah that the game was so slow for him. Mm -hmm. And it's something we hear in sports all the time. It slows down. But mastery allows you that. Of course. And, and, and there's all these things that lead up to it. It's practice. It's loving the process. It's eliminating distractions. It's managing your life. Well, so you have room for that. And then ultimately, and that's what I think about Jordan. It's like the great moments in Jordan's career, not when he's trying to, dominate spud web or or like trying to humiliate someone it's it's when he just loves it right like we the love of the game the great jordan moments are the moments when he just when he's sticking his tongue out yeah. you know like that's or he, the he runs by and goes i don't know i'm just hot right now yes, like that's that's, that's, that's a jordan we all love yeah where it, it comes so easy to them yes and and I think I bet you've had moments in your career where you were just like killing it in an interview or something came to you. That didn't come from you going like, I'm going to crush this interview. It came from being loose. It came from having done the work up until this point. Yeah. It came from it, it came from a place of of non thinking. When you go, like you, you talk a lot about the routine. Some people wake up at 4 a.m. Some people work at 10 a.m. Um, did any of the routines remind you of your routine, whether it's Ulysses S. Grant? And did any of the routines you go, that would never work for me, but I understood why it worked for them. So I talk a lot about Churchill's routine in it. Uh, and Churchill's routine is fascinating because he has all these hilarious ones. He's what like, a life this man lived. So one of his is that spouses should never see each other before noon, <laughs> which I actually like. And, and and the thing is, is him and his wife had an incredible relationship. Yeah, yeah so of course. It, I get right. it. Right. Uh, but like, so he, and, and, for him, it was about like time, like there were different zones in the day to do different things. There's a relaxation zone. There's like a taking a bath zone, a nap zone. There's a Feeding writing the swan zone. zone. Yeah. And, and so I just love the idea that it's like you have, you have different things that you kind of do every day. I, I've tried to be a little bit more flexible with my routine, especially having kids. It's like the idea, like Russell Westbrook's routine, for instance, now that he changes teams, is he like anxious? You know, like if, so if you're too, mm. like, if I'm so wedded to my routine, well, what happens when I have to go to New York for a week? You know, it, I, I want to have routines, plural, that allows me to be flexible. So it's more like I have a list of core things that I do every day yeah. and I kind of mix the order around. But like, these are the sort of touchstones that I can always come I back to. I can tell to. you take a lot of pride when you're traveling and you still get in like four miles in the pool. Yeah. Like I could tell that that matters. Well, I've never done four miles in the pool, but whatever, yes, whatever yes, it is that yes. you do. Yes. I ran and swam today. And, and the thinking, uh, that's the other part of it. it. When you love the process, when you love the routine, like I, today's the book, the book coming out. So I could be sitting there constantly refreshing Amazon. I could be making phone calls. I yes. could be harassing my publisher. What Tweeting are the numbers? Like a monster. All of this is going to have next to no impact on sales. So it's like, it's like, it's done. You know what I mean? Like I, it, I won it or lost it already. So like, for me, it was like, I'm going to just have a good day. I'm going to work out. I'm going to write. Like I was writing in my hotel room. I'm going to like try to eat well. Yeah. I'm going to try to like be present. I'm going to like, for me, it's, there's no amount of anguish that's going to change where this 
freighters going. So, but what I do control is the ability to have a, just an, another good day that moves things forward on whatever I'm doing next. Will your wife or anyone close to you try to get you to celebrate at all? I mean, I'm not saying I won't celebrate. Yeah, how, like do, I, how do you celebrate? I, I usually celebrate by working more. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I do try to appreciate the moments. But I think the other thing that's that's that I, I was thinking about this last night, it's like I've done this now nine times. So you got to imagine the other part for for Belichick or Saban, not to compare myself to them. You just it's, did. It's OK. No, no. Like I, I can imagine he's leaving the party to celebrate the championship early to recruit because like first off it's just a fucking party and he's been to this party seven times already yeah and it's not really about him it's about everyone else and so that's the other thing i kind of think about with books is like i'm, I'm not in this to put out books you know what i mean like i like writing books yeah so that's what i enjoyed about your book perennial seller was the intent of creating and what it is you're really trying to accomplish. Cause it's my number one issue with, with content today, whether it's video or audio or written word is that we're all trying to fill this gap that we think people want. And we're not looking at what we believe needs to be created. We're, we, we're letting this algorithm decide who we are, what we're going to, what we're going to do. And the algorithm doesn't fucking know. The algorithm only knows what people have already liked. Exactly. It doesn't know what they haven't even seen yet. Of course. Um, a few notes that I just want to get out before yeah. we kind of wrap up is, is non-sports people. Okay. Uh, I thought this quote from Tolstoy that you featured, love can exist off in the future. Love is only real if it's happening right now, yeah. is the number one way to fix every relationship that's ever experienced an issue. Yeah. So many of the issues that I always hear to go very far from sports is you did something to me in the past. Yep. You're not going to give me something in the future. Right. But really the only way that you'll ever connect with somebody is truly just being there in that moment. Yeah. I would say like the, the biggest sorts of conflict in my relationships is when something happens, like somebody lies to you or somebody talks to you a certain way or somebody drops the ball on something. This could be a, a romantic relationship or a professional relationship, or it could just be like some stranger on the street Sure, is when you go if I let this slide right now, they're going to do this to me all the time. You know what? Like, and it's like, you have no idea. Like this could, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And, and you're not being present when that happens. So, so like, like if you really think about it, like, let's say somebody cheats on somebody else in a relationship, th there's some pain from the cheating, but really what makes the relationship unable to continue. And I'm not saying we should stay with someone who cheats with you or that you should cheat, but it's, it's the fear that they will do this to you again. And the inability to repair that in the relationship is yeah. the problem. It's suffocating. And, and it's suffocating and it, it makes both parties miserable. And it's also impossible to fix because you can't know. So right. it's, it's you, neither of you are being present. And, uh, and that's, you know, killing the relationship. And then the quote that I thought um, is something that everyone deals with, no matter what they do, from Martin Luther King Jr., Really that there's a battle in all of us yeah. between what we can be and how hard it is to actually get there. Yeah. Everyone listening to this right now has a dream. And I get dozens of emails every week, either people wanting to do this because they believe that this is their dream sure. or they have another dream and they just can't muster up the courage to do it. 
And the thing that I think frustrates everybody is no matter how many books they read or how many podcasts they listen to or how many people they meet, they know that the way to get there is to just do it. Right. And there, there is no other way. And I think that's so scary to people and it's, and it frustrates them completely. But once they realize that all it takes is you just doing the thing, yeah, it, your fear should subside. But, but it is the number one thing that I think arrests everybody. Yeah. He said we haven't, he said, and he said this when this meant something that the, he said there's a North and South in every one of us and that these forces are fighting with each other and you got to decide sort of what side you're going to be on. But you talk to people and they're like, yeah, I want to be a writer. And it's like, okay, what have you written? You know, like, show me the writing. Or, or they're like, I want to drop out of college to start a podcast. Or I want to, you know, quit my job and become an entrepreneur. And it's like, what, what, what makes you think you could only start that stuff after? And the fact that you haven't started it now out of love and passion and real commitment to it is a sign that maybe you don't have it. You know what I mean? And so uh, you should be you should be doing it already. And then you can talk about what's the best way to do it or best. Yes. Way. But it's like if you haven't started, that's saying something. You're waiting for a shot. And this isn't uh, unlike sports. You don't get drafted. Yes. You know what I mean? There's there's no other part in the world where they pick you and say, we're going to make you into what we need. Yeah, I think people. I've always assumed it's because of the college selection process. It's like that that six months where you're getting all these letters in the mail. Yeah. And they're like, your scores qualified you for Elizabethtown College. And everyone's like, oh, this is how life works. Like yeah. people see what you can do. And that's never the case. And I my advice always sucks. I'm like, if you want to do a podcast, you need to start one. Right. If you want to be on camera, use your phone. Right. You're you're not it is there has never been an instance where within three days a Fox executive is going to go, I saw that Instagram right. post you're coming on. Realize it's going to be a journey. And yeah. if you start it now, you'll get there that much faster. Yo, totally, totally. I, Seneca has this line. He says, the one thing fools always have in common is that they are always getting ready to live. Like they're always about Fuck. to do it. And they that never do it. That hits you right in the chest. Totally. And it I think there's something that is it Gresham's law or I, I forget what it's called, but the, the idea is that it always takes longer than you think, even when you take the law into account. And like uh, the obstacles away came out in 2014. It did okay. First week. Um, it didn't get picked up by the Patriots till uh, the end of that season. So that's like six months. Didn't get written about by sports illustrated for a year. Uh, didn't really, really start selling until after that. It didn't hit the bestseller list until May of this year. It took five years. To How rare is it for a book to do that? Uh, I mean, I think there's some shenanigans going on. Like it, <laughs> it's it's conspicuously yeah, absent yeah. on the bestseller list. But um, the the point is, like it uh, it takes a long fucking time. And then the other thing to go to what we're talking about with enough, like you know how it felt. Didn't feel like anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you get the news and you go, okay. And then you get back to work. Not because you're unhappy or because it doesn't, it, it's that it never really had any power to change you. It doesn't mean anything. Like I, I was talking about this with a, a coach friend of mine. I was like, Kevin Durant wants to come to New York to win a championship on his own. And you know how it's going to feel exactly the fucking same. Like it's not going to feel any different. Yeah. Uh, but the the point is like, 
it, it never had the power to do anything. And it was, if you're doing it right, it was never why you're doing it in the first place. So you might as well do what you want to do. Of course. And, and realize that, you know, there's not going to be any award or any contract or anything that's going to go, yes, I've made it. That doesn't fucking exist. No, it doesn't. It doesn't they, they exist. They don't throw you a parade. And even if they did, it's it, gonna wouldn't, end. it wouldn't change anything. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All right. Uh, go and check out the book. Stillness is the key. If you want to check out, if you want to find a way to start off thinking about whether it's stoic philosophy or getting into a good mindset, Ryan also has a book called Daily Stoic, where there is a meditative passage that you can read read every day. And you can also get a journal, too. And I have started journaling a lot more lately, oh, nice. just kind of emptying the brain every There's day. There's a podcast of it, too. And if you want it digestible in three to four minutes, the Daily Stoic podcast is a great way to do it. Ryan, I'm very proud of you. Thanks. I know that means a lot to you. Uh, but thank you for this. That's Congratulations on everything. And um, love you, buddy. Thanks, man. Yeah, bro. All right, people, hit him up. I know he might not. What is it? At Ryan Holiday? Yeah. Hit him up on social. I am the L-E-F-K-O-E man. Enjoy the games tomorrow. I'll let you guys later.